Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I remember being that woman that was like, I'm in my 30s, I already have a child. The clock is ticking, right? And I remember telling him, which is so frightening now, but I remember saying, I'm not going to be dating you forever. So you need to figure out what you like. We're on our third date. We didn't really know each other. We had dated for six months before he proposed, had a very small wedding. And had we dated longer, we would have realized that we were better as friends as we are right now. And I had not thought about what I wanted and needed for myself as a woman, only what I wanted and needed for myself as a mother. He had been given an ultimatum by a beautiful woman and felt he's in his 30s. It's time for him to settle down and be serious. You know, it's just like this recipe for disaster that I feel so many couples find themselves in. And some are able to make it work and some are not. Hey there, it's Light Watkins, your host of At the End of the Tunnel, which is a podcast that features the backstories of individuals who have found their calling or their purpose with large or small causes, and they are now using their voice or their art or their platform in a way that leaves the world a better place. Well, my guest today is Christine Platt. She is an advocate. She is a storyteller. She is a minimalist. And more specifically, she is known as the Afro-minimalist. Christine grew up in a single family household where she read a lot of books as a child and she ended up getting two degrees in African-American studies and then later she got her law degree. But after initially not being able to find legal work and she wasn't sure why, a mentor suggested that she change her resume to say that she actually got degrees in social sciences as opposed to African-American studies, which was something that she was initially very conflicted about doing, but because she needed a job to take care of her new child, she gave it a try, and lo and behold, she secured a great job in environmental law, which looked great on paper, and it paid well, but... Her 12-plus-hour workdays started making her feel guilty for neglecting her family. And she started succumbing to retail therapy without even realizing it. Then she and her new husband began spending much of their income trying to keep up with the Joneses. They bought the large house. They had the fancy cars. And Christine started having these ideas about resigning and revisiting her childhood love of storytelling. So she self-published a novel and she dreamt of becoming the next great American novelist. But her second attempt got rejected by publishers. Meanwhile, she had quit her job, so she no longer had that steady paycheck. And there started to become financial strain on the marriage. They had all this toxic debt from all these things they didn't need. And eventually the whole thing just crumbled. Christine found herself sitting at home trying to write, but she kept getting distracted 
by noticing how she was surrounded by all this stuff that she no longer used or needed. And many of her clothes still had the price tag on them because she never wore them. And Christine decided to start intentionally minimalizing. She also got another job while she continued to write and she started to craft these African-American historical children's books, which became moderately successful. And she ended up writing over two dozen of those as she was going through her minimalism experiment. She ended up joining an online community about minimalism that got bigger with time. And eventually, Christine decided to start writing about minimalism for the culture in case anyone like her was also looking for inspiration to minimalize their stuff. And during the pandemic, she wrote The Afro-Minimalist's Guide to Living with Less. So we're going to dive into Christine's backstory and connect the dots and see how it all came to be. But first, I want to remind you to rate and review this podcast, especially if you've been listening to multiple episodes and you've gotten a lot of value from it or you've been inspired by it. Your rating and review goes a lot further than you can imagine. And it only takes about 10 seconds to just look at your screen, click the name of the podcast, scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see five stars. Just tap the one on the right and you've left the rating. It's literally that quick and easy. So thank you for doing that for me. Meanwhile, let's get into our juicy conversation with Christine Platt and find out how exactly she found her purpose in becoming the Afro minimalist. Christine, it's an honor to have you on at the end of the tunnel. Thank you so much for making the time and for being willing to share your story of becoming the Afro minimalist. Ah, happy to be here. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I like to start the conversations off talking about childhood, actually. And so just for the record, where did you grow up? You know, I grew up in West Palm Beach, Florida, which I feel like I should preface is very different than Palm Beach, Florida. <laughs> it would be akin to the other side of the tracks when we're talking about Palm Beach and West Palm Beach. But it's a wonderful place to grow up and had just a wonderful childhood. Went to the beach every weekend, and it was a very small town back then. Uh, it has since, you know, been gentrified and become a flourishing economy there. But it was a magical place to have a childhood. Thinking back to little Christine in West Palm Beach, Florida, do you remember? having a favorite toy or activity that you were sort of obsessed with? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I was obsessed with the West Palm Beach Public Library. Shout out to them. They had the most amazing children's section and rumor has it that I read every book in the children's section my mom used to take me to the library every Saturday. They would have story time and whatever the maximum number of books I could check out. I vaguely remember it being 10, but I would check out 10 and the next week I would be ready for my next 10. Yeah, it was beautiful too. It was like right off the intercoastal. And so that was my favorite activity and pastime. Well, you and I are around the same age. 
And when I was a kid, we watched copious amounts of television. So I'm imagining you didn't watch very much television if you were reading 10 books a week. No, we did not watch a lot of television. Even now, I don't watch a lot of television. We didn't have cable. Our television was only on. You're going to crack up, but you're going to remember this to play Atari. If you are in my age group, <laughs> you had the first Atari, my friend. Um, and so the 2600. You know, oh my gosh. Good times. Moving that little joint. Yeah. Right? And then Nintendo was like, it was like oh my Apple gosh. compared to IBM, oh you know, God, Nintendo came out and duck hunt and we were, I mean, Mario and it was Donkey yeah. Kong. Oh my God. Yeah. Those were good times. Right. Um, but yeah, so, <laughs> My older brother was much more into video games, and I believe that first Atari only had one joystick, so I had plenty of time to read, let's just say that. Was that circumstance of the television not being on, was that something that your parents instituted for good, or they just weren't, they couldn't afford a television, or what, what was the deal? You know, it's so wild. I'm so glad you asked that question, because this is like a big part of my childhood that I never knew that we were essentially living in poverty um, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> until, <so funny. laughs> until literally until I like went off to college. I remember going home, you know, you like go home with one of your friends or roommates or whatever. And I was just like, oh my God, like I had no idea. Our house was in Pleasant City, which is a former black settlement town. So everyone there was living in poverty, right? But my mom, And I was raised by my mom. She never said, we don't have money for this. We can't do this. If I said, oh, I would really love to have X, Y, and Z, she would just say, oh, we don't need that right now. Or put it on your Christmas list, right? Because, you know, kids, forget about it five minutes later, right? Right, Um, right, right, right. But I thought that it was such a beautiful way for her to not have me feel limited or, you know, that we were in this scarcity environment, right? So in retrospect, we were like borderline dirt. You all were minimalists by (laughs) circumstance. We were minimalists by circumstance, (laughs) right? There was no choice there. (laughs) You know, it was literally like a one bedroom house, my twin bed and my brother at one corner, hers at the other. And I remember we went back to look into that house, which by the way, had the cutest address. It was 447 Cheerful Street. Cheerful Street. Wow. 447 Cheerful Street. So we went back and I looked in that window and I could not believe how tiny it was. Like there is no tiny tiny house. house, There is no tiny house in America that could compare to how small that house was. But I just remember it being so big and so Mm -hmm. filled with love. And I just felt like I had everything that I needed and wanted. Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork. 
And you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. Was your brother a prolific reader as well, or is that your thing? That was my thing, but my brother actually taught me to read. I learned how to read when I was, they say four, but I'm saying five. You know how family likes to fudge the stories a little bit, but I was definitely young. He taught me how to read, and he was actually raised by my father, so he was not in our home all of the time. But that was definitely my thing. Like once I knew how to read, I just loved getting lost. People who read a lot, they tend to be better storytellers than people who don't read. They tend to have big imaginations. They Mm -hmm. tend to be able to sort of connect dots between seemingly unrelated things. Mm -hmm. Was that your experience as a child? Like, were you able to see through people's bullshit because you read so many books and you had so many (laughs) points of reference for stories? Oh my gosh, I did. I did. And it was something that I carried into adulthood. And that Uh was not sort of, I would say tamed until I went to law school, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. But yeah, I mean, that was the first time I was like, ma'am, all this, you know, I'd be weaving in extra like, right. what if, and maybe, and they're like, the facts, these are the facts. This is the law. <laughs> right. All of this extra that you're bringing in. Right. But yeah, up until that time. Yeah. I just always had a big imagination was always like, oh, that doesn't sound right. You know, cause I had more perspectives, even though they weren't my lived experiences, right. I had yeah. more perspectives because I'd experienced all these different lives on the pages of books. What was your family's spiritual or religious leaning when you were growing up? (laughs) So it's so funny. We went to whatever the neighborhood church was, right? So when we moved from 447 Cheerful Street, so when we were at 447 (laughs) Cheerful Street, I should start there. We were at Episcopalian Church. And then when we moved to, I can't even remember the other address because 447 Cheerful Street was like my childhood, but I was in middle school. I remember that. And yeah, it was a Baptist church that we went to then. So yeah, I think that also helped me too. Denominations to me are irrelevant. It's almost like, what is the message? What are you teaching? I would say that we were spiritual, less than religious, right? There was always this solid grounding and framework that there was a higher being, that we love and respect this higher being. You know, my mom read her Bible religiously, 
even still does. There was never any any real pressure on me to read the Bible. I mean, Genesis was kind of like the best for me because I was like the best story. But yes, I just had like a just being spiritual. I just, just knowing that there was a higher being and that I was to show some deference and respect in that regard. Do you recall any philosophies or mantras that your mom espoused to you and your brother when you were a kid? Things that maybe you even find yourself saying to your daughter? My mom was really big on respect, especially to elders. And then as I grew older, I just remember being like, respect for everyone. And she would say things, you know, like, which is so funny because we were literally borderline (laughs) or probably not even borderline. We probably were in poverty, but let's say we passed someone who was sitting on the sidewalk and begging for food. And if I even looked a certain way, she would say, if you both took a bath, you'd leave a ring around the tub. Like you're no better Mm. than anyone. You know what I mean? Like that was instilled in me at a very young age. And even when I graduated from law school, I remember her saying, your professors all had just such wonderful things to say about you. She said, but you know what I'm most proud of? She said, the fact that everyone who worked the grounds, everyone who was, you know, the janitorial staff, they all knew your name. Mm. And they all had good things to say about you. And she said, that's what makes me most proud, you know? So there was definitely this sort of air that you love and respect everyone. One of the things that she also said that I found myself saying to my daughter is that there's good and bad in every race, right? Mm. Because we lived in a very racially charged area. We were in the black part. (laughs) We were not so much welcome in the white part, right? You know, as you get older, you hear, you know, you hear all sorts of things, you know, white people are this, white people are that, you know, you start repeating stuff and she would say, it's good and bad in every race. And that is like instilled in me at a young age. So it's just, you know, as someone who lost her own mother in her teenage years, mm-hmm. I just admire her so much for what she was able to do and instill in me with what little Was she a young mom with you guys? Was she younger? No, no. She was actually an an older mom. She was in, she had me in like her late twenties, early thirties. Yeah. So So. she'd been around the block a couple of times then. Yeah, but still in a very much naive about a lot of things, right? Because she didn't have that maternal guidance. Yeah. I mean, she worked as a secretary Again, I did not know how much secretaries made (laughs) until it was time for me to go to college. And she couldn't help me fill out my FAFSA. There was a teacher at my high school who helped all the kids who were first gen fill out their FAFSAs. And I just remember being like $26,000 a year, like 20, I, I just couldn't, I could not believe that that is what we had lived off of and probably less when I was younger. Obviously, I don't know the circumstances of why you guys were in that situation, but I know that a lot of times with women who are struggling financially or what have you, who have daughters, they try to impress upon their daughters, don't depend on a man or, did you get any of that from your mom? Like be independent. Oh yeah. I mean, I got that from my mom, the black aunties in the neighborhood. (laughs) I mean, I think that was like a common refrain, you know, during my time and in, in that neighborhood. But 
never like hate men. You know what I right, mean? It was definitely right, right. more like, you know, you make sure you can take care of yourself, make sure you can do for yourself, make sure, you know what I mean? Like it was never like, you don't need a man. Cause again, I felt like she really did a good job of just instilling balance and having me make my own decisions. Like I remember saying, what should I be when I grow up? And she would say, well, what do you want to be? I'd be right. like, I don't know. That is why I'm asking you. She's like, I cannot decide that for you. Right. And I would like push and push because all my friends, their parents were telling them, you need to be a doctor. You need to be this. Right. You need to be that. And she wouldn't do it. And I remember being very upset about it in my teenage years and very grateful huh. about it as a young adult. <laughs> Anyone whose child is reading and sure, this is maybe an exaggeration, but 10 books a week, you're either going to be the smartest person in your class or you're going to be completely detached because everyone is so below your level of understanding that you're just not interested at all, right? So yeah. when you thought about your adult life and growing up, how did you contrast it with what was going on with your mom as a secretary? How did you view the idea of success as a young person? What was success for you? You know what's interesting? I never thought about success. Mm. I thought more about being happy with mm. what I was doing, which is how I ended up majoring in Black studies, right? I should also mm. note that I was bright, a bright child, and ended up going to an IB school, which challenged me academically. But by the time I got to undergrad, I remember taking my first Black studies. It was like CAFAM History 101. And it was the first time really having an opportunity to see myself, to see my history on the pages of a book. And I was like, oh, I'm going to major in Black Studies. And everybody was right. like, you know, this is the 90s, right? Everyone's like, yeah. what are you going to do with that? And I was like, I don't know, but it's so wonderful and I'm learning so much. And people were like, you're insane. And so, yeah, I didn't view, and thankfully I didn't, you know, I, I would have majored in something probably totally different, something that I thought would be lucrative, right? So that's how I ended up majoring in Black Studies is because success to me was just always being very much happy and enjoying what I was doing and being able to pursue that with as much passion and desire as I wanted to, as I wanted to. So it wasn't until I got old, I would say like, again, man, when we get to those law school years, that was like, <laughs> that was like a life altering time for me. But, you know, it wasn't until I got in that sort of sphere of competition and are you going to be a junior associate forever? Are you going to be partner? Are you like, that is when sort of my ideas of success was skewed but for undergrad and grad school it was beautiful right I just had an opportunity to learn as much as I could about our history and culture and it was awesome you're an attractive person you're six feet tall and you're young, you're an undergraduate. Was there any temptation to maybe take advantage of the way you look and go and become a model or any of that kind of stuff? And then the second part of the question is, at what point did you realize you wanted to go to law school? I did a little modeling when I was in high school. For the local department store? Yeah, <laughs> for the local department stores. And then I had like an agent in Miami and 
you know, in retrospect, thinking about making $1,500 a day, $2,000 mm-hmm. a day in mm-hmm. respect to what my mom was making mm-hmm. is just wild. But when it came time for graduation, I was sort of at those crossroads, right? And my friends who, like when you're in that 14, 15, 16 year old range, you're like prime model time. And they were pursuing it full time. And my mom was like, no, you have to get an education, right? So she did. That was the only time she she didn't say what you need to major in, but she was like, <laughs> what you're not going to do is be out here being this little model girl. And I think, you know, her thing was that beauty fades. It has always been a very, I don't want to say predatory. That's not the right word. But, you know, if you don't have the right folks around you and sure. guidance, it can be, you know, a problematic a industry. And- yeah, yeah, dodgy people. For sure. And, you know, when I went to undergrad, there was a local modeling agency in Tampa called Alexa Models. And I did a little work for them, like department store stuff or whatever. But it was never really something that I wanted to pursue mm. like that. Right. And I think I was one of those people that sort of hid behind, like, I didn't want to be seen as just beautiful. Right. I always wanted, sure. like, my intelligence to be at the forefront, right? And so there was a lot of baggy clothing. There's still a lot of baggy clothing, which drives my friends crazy. I mean, you don't you don't get to choose your DNA, right? Like I don't sure I don't get an award for <laughs> having this chromosomal sort of, hey, it worked out. But I felt like I was very much in control of other aspects of my life. Right. So it's I feel like only now in my 40s am I like leaning into and embracing the fact that like, yeah, you're a beautiful woman. You can cut off your hair, do your little thing. Right. Mm-hmm. But definitely when I was younger, it was something that I did not want at the forefront. What inspired the law school decision? So I was in, <laughs> I was in grad school majoring in black studies, which is around the time when you realize like, oh, this is why everyone was asking me, what was I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> degree, right? I was like, oh, so I only have one choice. I could just get my PhD and teach all, you know, like that was it. And that didn't, I don't know, it just wasn't appealing to me at the time. It just seemed so limiting. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like I could always go teach. And so I remember professor saying, she's like, I mean, look, you can either go get your PhD, you can go to law school. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to law school. Like, no rhyme or reason other than Mm -hmm. that. And I remember taking the LSAT. I had also applied to a few grad schools, like just in case, but I'd gotten into like University of Wisconsin. I'd gotten into a school in Miami. And I remember contacting the LSAT to try and get my money back. So I didn't have to take the test. It's so embarrassing. And they were like, the test is like coming up. We cannot give you your full amount back. We can just give you a portion. I was like, you know what? Forget it. I'll just take the test. So I take the test, I do well on it. I start getting all of these letters, you know, Cornell is this place, is that place. And I was like, oh, maybe I should go to law school. <laughs> and ended up wanting to stay in Ohio and started at a small school there called Capital University Law School. Because again, I had no idea, like, I didn't have anyone to guide me and say like, no, you need to go to the most prestigious law school ever. I was like, this is super convenient. I won't have to move across country. This is going to be great. And they gave me a very generous scholarship. And then around that time, my stepfather, 
which my mom got married after I went off to high school. Another thing that I respect her for greatly, especially going to college and hearing so many horror stories from some of my classmates about what their stepfathers had done, you know, this whole nine. So she waited until I was out of the house before she married. Apparently they were dating the whole time, but whatever, that's whole nother story. Around this time, he was diagnosed with total kidney failure. And so I applied to transfer to a law school in Florida so I could be closer to home and then I ended up going to Stetson Law School. And surprise, I had one little romp with a friend of mine in grad school. One little romp. I, one little romp. <laughs> That's all it I takes. That's all it takes. So I get down to Stetson and I'm moving in. I'm like, oh, I'm tired. Oh, it's so <laughs> stressful. I was just so much. Where is, wait a minute. I'm like counting the days. I'm like, no way. Like, there's no way. And yes, that was the way. And it was so funny because, you know, I remember calling like friends being like, you're not going to believe this. I'm pregnant. And they would just like laugh. They'd be like, girl, stop. Girl, we all know you don't even have sex. I'm like, you're such a nerd. You're such a nerd. You're not out here doing anything, right? So it was like such a shock to everyone. And I remember having to make this choice, right? And it was a very quick, like, ah. I guess I'm about to be a mom. I mean, I was 27. I ended up giving birth to my daughter when I was 28. And all of a sudden I was in law school with a baby. Was that a decision to be a single mom or were you trying to work it out and figure things out with the father? We were friends and both very much held steadfast to like, just because we have this, like we didn't want to fall into Mm -hmm. this trap. Okay. Uh, let's try and make right. it. No, we're pretend for like it's more yeah, than what it was. Like, yeah. It's not, bruh. So, <laughs> and I think that helped as well, too, right? Like, we just were co parents sure. from day one and partners in that respect. And he was still in grad school. So he was still in Ohio. And I, I was going it alone. Which makes Which, it an even bigger decision for you. Very big decision, you know, and again, we're talking almost 20 years ago, there's still a lot of stigma around being a single mother, being a black woman as a single mother, you get these like, you know, older women, just these looks of disappointment, like, you almost made it, you were in law school and damn it, you know, like, (laughs) so I know what a lot of that sort of thing But, you know, like she was born and just it was almost like she knew mommy was in law school and that all she could like all I could handle was her being the happiest baby ever. Like we still joke. Her dad does robotics and we joke that she's a robot. She was a robot baby because she was so sweet. (laughs) She like never cried. She was just happy. And she ended up being the law school baby in that, you know, when it was around finals time, everyone would come over to my house be like I just need that baby aromatherapy I just need those good (laughs) those good pheromones so yeah in retrospect of course this is me reflecting 18 years later you know it was a beautiful time not easy for sure but yeah it could have been much Mm. much much worse I will say that you have a law degree you have a young baby and you have on your resume, it says you were an African-American major and you found it mm-hmm. hard to get employment. Like, yeah, man, they were like, 
<laughs> what? There was there was no Black Lives Matter movement going no, on. Like, there was none no, none of that. Yeah, and you said your and, faith wavered. What, what was the, what oh, was that man. like? You know, because I again, I really believed in doing what you love, right? And and mm-hmm. felt that it was very important for that I had so much passion and joy around African and African American history, but there was nothing for me. And my, I, I was just like, how did I end up here? Like, God, what, like, what? Like, you can just close this door sooner. And I remember the first career coach telling me like, ah, I think I have to take that black studies off your resume. Just say. Was that a black person or a white person who told you that? I don't even remember. I don't even remember, but it's probably a white career. But I feel like I would have got the advice from anyone at that time. It was just like, right. girl, the minute they see that is like, next. Did so, you have any hotep tendencies back then? Were you, people <laughs> know that you were an African-American <laughs> studies no, major just from having did, a five minute conversation I with you? I was not smelling like patchouli and, you know, <laughs> doing, doing the thing out there. No, I think it was very clear that I have had a love of history. I think anytime folks engage me in conversation, but no, there was no way of of telling that I was a black studies major until you saw my resume. And so I remember her telling me to like change that to the social sciences. And I was just like, it just felt so deceitful. You know what I mean? And now she was like, no law firm cares what you majored in an undergrad, but like when they see that, then they start caring. So I took it off and sure enough, I started getting hits. And the first law firm that reached out to me was a small boutique law firm that did energy and environmental work. And it was on the plaintiff side, which meant there was some natural intersection there with race. And I was just like, man, I could have kept it on my resume. But anyway, it ended up being just a wonderful opportunity, just doing a a lot of brownfields litigation. Like it was just, it was amazing. Is that like Aaron um, Brockovich type of work where people are class action was, suits? and? Yeah, but I was more like Aaron Brockovich assistants. Got it. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I was fresh out of law school. So yeah, so around that time, no one knew what energy and environmental law was. So think like early 2000s. And then all of a sudden, renewable energy became a thing. Everyone was talking about renewable energy. Everyone was talking about the environment. Everything that we, you know, would say like, oh, that's crunchy granola people. That's what they do. All of a sudden, it was like a a national movement. And I was one of the few Black women in energy, which meant I could write my ticket, which meant I did because I had a toddler and I was still a single mom. And I was like, I'm going to work in big law. So I went to a larger firm that was not doing plaintiff's work. They did a lot of project finance work. So think like wind turbine development, Mm -hmm. solar panel development, but like early 2000s. And I made a lot of money, but I worked a lot of hours. Mm -hmm. And I think that is when my spending really, that's when it really started kicking in, right? Because it was, it was, I had the resources, you know, as a way for me to escape reality and e-commerce was just starting. So I could like order things online and have it delivered to the firm, which is so funny to think about how stuff would take like days. 
back then, right? And mm-hmm. now you, I could like order something right now and be like, yeah, I need that at five o'clock and it would be here. But <laughs> if you, you know, order in the next 34 minutes, <laughs> right, it'll be there you know, by seven o'clock tonight. Yeah, so it'll be on your doorstep. But yeah, it was the beginning of e-commerce. And so that was how my journey sort of started with accumulating all the things. And then there's sort of a trajectory that a lot of lawyers follow if they don't end up going from junior associate mid-level to in the hopes of making partner, you realize that you get burnt out and you hate law and you want Mm -hmm. to leave. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so you go big law to smaller law firm, then to government, right? Mm -hmm. Like government is like this last sort of pit stop before you Mm -hmm. figure out like what your true calling in life is. And so I remember around the time it was Barack Obama's first election season. And, you know, we were all like, we were just happy that like, I'd never thought in a million years that we would even have a black candidate. And then it became clear that he was going to win. And I'm like in DC. And I was like, this is amazing. And I think like every black person who had any sort of wherewithal in terms of wanting to work under this administration. I mean, the, the day after he was elected, I was like, okay, where can I work? Right. And was able to get a job at the Department of Energy. Again, one of the few Black women in energy, I could have gone wherever, right? And it ended up just renewing my love for working with people and and changing lives. And I worked in the office of weatherization. So weatherization assistance, they provide low-income homes with energy retrofits to make their homes more energy efficient. And it was just beautiful meaningful work. And around that time, I met my now ex-husband. And I remember just being really tired of being a single mom. I was exhausted. And I was like, I just need to meet a nice guy that's going to help me raise this baby. (laughs) And that's exactly what I got, a nice guy that helped me raise my daughter. How did you guys meet? Because there weren't any apps back then. Yeah, there were no apps. Do you know, I still have not been on a dating app, but that's a conversation (laughs) for another day. But we actually met at a March Madness party with one of the other Black women attorneys that I knew. She was having this, she was, did not have a child. So she was always out in the streets. So she had like this big March Madness party at some nightclub or whatever. And and we and met, you didn't want like, to go, you? but you went at the oh, last you minute. Know how, you know the story. You know the story. No, I wanted to go. I had a babysitter and I was like, I have a night out. Get you know? to get out. Yeah. I get to get out. And um, yeah, I met Joe and he was just the nicest guy. And I was just like, he's a nice guy. We got on a date. And after like the second date, oh, I don't even know if we have enough time for all these stories, but I remember being that woman that was like, I'm in my 30s, I already have a child. The clock is ticking, right? And I remember telling him and saying, which is so frightening now, but I remember saying like, I'm not going to be dating you forever. So you need to figure out what you like. We're on our third date. We didn't really know each other. We had dated for six months before he proposed, I had a very small wedding. And had we dated longer, we would have realized that we were better as friends as we are right now. I had not thought about what I wanted and needed for myself as a woman, only what I wanted and needed for myself as a mother. He had been given an ultimatum Mm -hmm. by a beautiful woman 
and felt mm-hmm. he's in his thirties. It's time for him to settle down and be serious. You know, it's just like this recipe for disaster that I feel so many couples find themselves in and some are able to make it work and some are not. We ended up sharing our divorce story quite a bit to just sort of help other couples. We ended up being married for six years. And I think we both knew in year one, but you know, everyone's like, oh, it's always hard after year one. Oh, every marriage has, it. you know what I mean? Like it took us a minute to just be like, you know what? Forget what everyone else is saying. Like, this is just not working. I have a friend who told me she was together with her husband for 17 years before they got a divorce and having, you know, again, being around your same age and being just being in the world for that long, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, so that means it probably started to deteriorate around 10 years in and you tried to hold on for seven yeah. years yeah. before you yeah. finally decided it's much and easier to let go than it is to try to keep so making this thing work. It is, but I understand also why so many people have the fear of doing that. There's so much stigma and societal pressure to stay and make it work, to stay and Mm -hmm. make it work, to stay and make it work. And I think when you're in a situation like, like we were in, which was, there was no abuse. There was no, you know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. like, he's a great guy. What are you doing? Make it work. And it's like, I'm not happy. He's not happy either, but Mm -hmm. he doesn't even realize how unhappy. (laughs) And that's the theme of our current work, our minimalism work, right? It's, it's, Mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with having all this crap, but if you let it go, you may discover that you actually weren't even happy with all the stuff that you accumulated. And that actually there's some freedom in there for you to really hone in on what it is that you're inspired by and and uh, passionate about and all of that. So, so it's interesting to see that that was where, you know, that's just one little symptom that this minimalist inside of you was starting to awaken. It was starting to emerge. And I mean, we were like, right, you know, at the point of deciding like, yeah, we're going to get a divorce when, when I actually started my journey, you could only imagine how much more stuff that I brought when I had two incomes, right. To play around with. And I was just like, we have too much stuff and I'm going to start decluttering. Before that, you had rediscovered your passion for storytelling. Because I want to get to the point where you're sitting in your home with no job writing and starting to realize how much stuff you have, right? Because that's a key part of the story. It's a big part of the story. Me sitting in my house looking crazy, like, what am I doing? Just to give your listeners some context, this is now around like 2014. Mm -hmm. I realized that I am also unfulfilled in government. So this is also another part of making this transition, right? And and again, I say like so many lawyers and so many professions, I think, go through this and it just ends up leading you to your calling. But anyway, I was just very unfulfilled. I I could do my work with my eyes closed. And I had a friend say, you know what, we should do National Novel Writing Month. And I was like, that sounds so nerdy. Even to a nerd, that sounds nerdy. Like, what is that? She's like, oh man, every November, people around the world commit to writing a novel in one month. And I was like, that sounds so crazy, but yeah, let's do it. (laughs) And I ended up deciding to write a book about a theory that I had heard in grad school, which was that the spirits of slaves were not at rest and that they were embodied in the winds of hurricanes. And so this was an opportunity for me to 
do all the historical research that I wanted to do. I looked at the top 10 hurricanes and looked to see if there were any corresponding moments in Black history that would justify mm. the rage of a hurricane. It was the most magical soul awakening journey ever, but we'll have to have wow. a whole nother conversation about it. It was, ugh. so I start writing this book, doing this research and my soul is on fire. And I was mm. like, I forgot how much I loved writing. I forgot how much I loved research. I forgot how much I loved focusing on African and African-American history, right? So it awakened that or reawakened that. And I think once it was reawakened, there was just no way that it could ever mm. be dormant and go to sleep again. I ended up indie publishing that book thinking, hey, I accomplished something that's amazing. Mind you to anyone thinking about National Novel Writing Month, it is a time to write the good first draft of a novel. You will not, <laughs> not the final writing. draft. Not, yeah. <laughs> not it won't be print ready after <laughs> right, 30 I'm days. Like, no caveat there. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I edited it for like a year. Did you have a mentor that walked you no. through that process? I had no mentor. Did your friend even continue right? on beyond the month of November? No, she did not, which is like wild. And we met online. It's so weird. Like she just came into my life for that season mm, wow. and that reason. To get you to um, write your first book. To get oh, me to sure. write my first book. And it's so wild. Her name is Crystal. And she's always like, I'm so proud of you. Like we're so cool, you know, um, but she did not continue on. But yeah, so I indie published this book and I like a big little book launch party. Big little, you know, this is how we big. It was big for me, but it was small. Back yeah. then, you had Amazon Direct yes. Publishing. So is that what you did, KDP? That's what I did. I did KDP, and I also did the print because, like, you could back then you could do. So it was like, called Create Space, I think, back then. Yeah, it was Create Space. That's what it was. Yeah. So I did Create Space, and then I did the Kindle version of the book, mm -hmm. and it was just wild. I like found a cover designer online, and mm -hmm. anyway, it looked amazing. Ninety nine designs. <laughs> Or no, thank you. One of those Fiverr. No, like Fiverr. Yeah. <laughs> you pay real money. I Craigslist. Pay real money. Yeah. So I always tell people, I'm, a, I'm like, you know, I found this cover designer that also worked with traditional publishers and still works right. with traditional publishers. And I bought a pre-made cover because mm -hmm. I couldn't afford like, and then I'm like, this is not my career. Like, I'm just going, let me find a mm -hmm. pre-made cover. But I had them do all the formatting and fonts and so it looked like a not self-published book, which back then indie publishing was not as hip and cool as it is today. But anyway, so I have my big little book launch party, all my friends and family come, and I think I'm just going to go back to work, right? So then my friends start reading and they're like, this is actually really good. I'm like, really? You think so? They're like, that's amazing. But you don't believe it when it's your friends, right? It's your, mm -hmm. So people start leaving reviews. And then I start hearing from educators. I start hearing from professors. And they're like, I just want you to know, I'm going to be using your book in my AFAM 101. And I'm like, wait, what is That's happening crazy. right now? Isn't that That's so crazy. Wild? And so then I get a call and it's the woman who is now my agent. She's like, are you represented? Would you like to seek representation? You know, it's just like the wildest journey ever that led me to where I'm supposed to be. Now, how did she um, get a copy of your book? So I had gone to, mind you, now I'm like, oh, 
I'm an author. Like this is right. really happening, I'm a right? Author. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I guess I should go to like a workshop or something to find out what I'm supposed to be doing. <laughs> so <laughs> I go to this writing, you know, like one of those weekend workshop things. And I was starting on my next novel, which was an Afro-German novel. It just talked about the fate of Afro-Germans during World War II, a story that's rarely told, which is kind of my thing. I like stuff that, you know, stories I have rarely sure. been told. I pitched that book as part of the weekend pitch competition or whatever. And there's an editor there from St. Martin's Press. And she's like, I just want you to know I have chills. She's like, I want that book. When is that book going to be finished? And I was like, I national novel writing month is coming. Like I, I'm <laughs> clueless. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm literally a clueless person at this point. And she says, I want that book. And she was like, do you think you can write it in a few months? And I was like, I can surely try. And she says, you know, we don't really work with authors directly. Publishers don't work with authors directly. So she said, I'm going to give your name to two agents that I know, and they'll be reaching out. And Emily was the first one who reached out. (laughs) Isn't that so wild? So all of a sudden I was agented. I had all these schools using my books, had all these speaking requests, and I had this opportunity to write another novel. And I was like, you know what? I just need to quit my job. I just need to focus on writing full time. And I'm married and we can live off one income. And by, I mean, I'm going to be the next great American novelist anyway. So let me just go ahead and quit this job so I can go ahead and do what I need to do. You know, and it was one of those things where you discover, and this is still true for me, I don't create the same when I'm sort of depending on it to feed me, right? Mm. So it it was a different type of pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Like National Novel Writing Month was fun. I took as much time as I wanted to edit. Now, all of a sudden, we have six figures that has stopped coming into the household based on this assumption, really, that I can write a novel in three months. And I just could not. I wrote the novel that she wanted, but it was not the novel that I would have intentionally set out to write. It was from the German woman's perspective, not the French African soldier's perspective. So I felt kind of icky about it, but also just like trying to get these coins the spirits and powers that be and the channeling that sometimes happens with historical fiction that had definitely happened with The Truth About Oichi writing my first novel, it just dried up. And I was like, characters, I need you to speak to me, right? Mm-hmm. And they were like, mm-mm. And in retrospect, they're like, girl, you know, sold out. But at the time, I'm like, <laughs> come on, come on, we need this money, right? And so writing that book in three months having the editor love it because it was what she wanted, having her team saying like, "Eh, I don't really connect with the characters, which Mm -hmm. didn't surprise me because I didn't connect with the characters in that way, but it was devastating and everything just sort of crumbled from there. And I was like, what was I thinking? I left my good government job to write this book and my marriage is in shambles and I got all this stuff. And, you know, it's just one of those very, very low points. You mentioned the financial pressure is one of the straws that broke the marriage camel's back. Yeah. I mean, I think marriage itself is just a pressure cooker. Anyway, we threw in, I mean, like the financial piece, is huge. And it was just like, 
right? And so it was just a very low and volatile time. I was like, this is it. Like, and and, people thinking yeah. you're at home all day. No, you got Listen. time to do whatever <laughs> they need I mean, you to you do. I mean, you got time. Like, yeah, you know, I was like, they would come home, like, you know, my ex-husband and my dad, and they'd be like, oh, what's for dinner? And like, I might have just have found my rhythm with writing. And right. I'd be like, my God, like y'all can pick up something on the way home. And they're looking at me like, but you're home. Yeah, like, you've been you're home all day. All day. <laughs> you're always talking about we need to save money. Cook, the least you, know? you could do is have dinner the ready. The least when we you get could do home. is make some Velveeta <laughs> shells and cheese, right? Like, I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> in retrospect, it was just a wild, wild time. But you know what I've come to realize is like those pressure cooker moments. That is often where the magic is. That is where our truth, our intentions, our authenticity, like our truest selves show up. And I think my truest self showed up. That was like, look, none of this is working. I had a condo that I had purchased when I first got that good, good check over there at the law firm. I'd been renting it out during our marriage. And I was like, can I go ahead? Tell the tenant, you know, it's time to go and then move back into our little condo. And I'm just going to have to, I'm going to keep trying to write. But in the interim, I'm going to get a job and I'm only going to look for work that focuses on what I love because now I know what it feels like and how quickly you can get sucked into, you know, you look up and it's like, I mean, I never wanted to do energy law. Here we are 10 years later and I'm a leader <laughs> in the industry, right? And I was like, so now that I'm going back into the workforce, I'm only, it has to be something that focuses on African and African-American history. And I remember applying to the new Smithsonian Museum because I was like, this is the perfect fit. And I would just get like rejection, rejection, rejection. I would be like, be screaming at my computer. How many applicants do you have with the bachelor's and master's <laughs> in black Jeez. studies and a law degree that's willing to do your social media? Like, are you serious right now? But, you know, again, in retrospect, that was just not where I was supposed to be. And it was, again, so this is now like 2017. I remember Dr. Ibram Kendi had spoken at my daughter's school. His, his book, Stamped, had just come out and we had him as an author. And I saw that him and his wife had moved to the D.C. area. I just like shot him a message on Facebook and was like, hey, I see that you guys are moving to the area. You have a daughter. I have navigated all of the D.C. child streets. Happy to offer you guys any guidance or anything. And he's like, oh, what have you been up to since, you know, that time? And I was like, oh, I'm still just writing, still just working on this novel. And then like a month or two later, I saw that he was starting the Anti-Racism Center at American University. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. Let me know if you, you know, need any volunteer help. I'm still just here trying to write this novel. And he was like, actually, I need a managing director. And I was like, really? (laughs) (laughs) Really, universe? You're just going to hand it to me like that? And so when they posted that job, of course, many people applied because we're now in a different era and I'm not the only one with a black studies degree and you know this whole kind of thing and he ended up selecting me in another candidate and we just had an amazing time standing at that center and it was just beautiful beautiful work and around that time I got the opportunity to write my first children's book Anna and Andrews and thought that I would never write for children 
but it was an opportunity again to focus on African and African-American history. And I discovered that I had a knack for writing for children. You say you got an opportunity. That means that someone came to you and said, would you write a children's book about X, Y, and Z African-American subject? My agent came to me in 2018. So keep in mind, I started at the center in November, sort of 2017. Mm -hmm. And my agent came to me and she said, there is a small educational publisher that is looking for a black writer to write a early reader chapter series about a little black family. And she said, I know you don't. You said you will never write for children. Cause I was always like, what am I going to tell these babies? I can't curse. I can't like, what am I going, <laughs> what am I going to tell the babies? She said, but I think it's a great opportunity. You should give it a try. And she says, you know, this is not like a get rich quick thing, right? <laughs> like it's a small educational publisher. This is going to be like work for hire. You're probably right. getting like 1500 $2,000 per book. So don't think that this is a, what's about to take you out of your... <laughs> Right. financial, you, you know, you're not going to be the next JK Rowling's off. Yeah. Books. Like, man, this is not, yeah, exactly. All I had to do was write one or two sentences about what each book would be about to sort of pitch it. But I'm pretty sure that I was the only black author who had the credentials. You right. know what I mean? That could like, yeah. so they were like, yeah, we'd pick her. And yeah, they ended up being like, oh, I love them so much. It was only supposed to be four books. We ended up writing 16 before that series ended. I did another history series called Shiro's for them, worked with another publisher to do like the story of MLK, the story of Helen Keller. How were these books selling? They were selling amazing, right? Which Mm. is, you know, I talk to authors all the time. A lot of folks have these kind of stories that are like, yeah, I had to take a pretty bum deal, you know, in Mm -hmm. retrospect Mm -hmm. to like get my foot in the door. But literally like in the span of two years, I had an opportunity to write over 30 children's books. And so all of a sudden it was like, I was an established children's book writer and ended up getting a really wonderful deal to work on a new series called Frank at five with Candlewick, very respectable children's publisher, you know, like this is going to be the next Judy Moody Stink series, right? But in the span of two years, it was like, probably one of those books is like all that I made (laughs) from those 30 books, right? If I had said, eh, I don't want to do it, I would just be in a totally different space right now. What's great about this part of the story is that you have experienced self-publishing, you have an experience with a second attempt at your narrative nonfiction. What makes a good children's book a great children's book compared to whatever you were doing <laughs> with your adult nonfiction books? Yeah. Like, what did you discover so, about that process? Like, oh, this is the form. This is this is what I'm really good at. You you know what I think? I think as a mother. I mean, I was just a natural storyteller, just thinking of like stories that I told my own daughter, you know, like it's bedtime. They're like, yeah, tell me a story. You just make up stuff off the fly. Right. And then she was also a preteen by then. So I still had all this like experience to draw from, from hilarious moments from her childhood. Right. And so I think what makes a good children's book is what makes any book a good book, which is authenticity. Right. And I think that's what was really missing from that second attempt at writing my second novel, which is so wild because now I'm 
writing a novel. <laughs> yeah, I'm on this whole wild trajectory now. So I got a book deal for that. But I got that Frankie book deal right before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hit and my agent is like, this might be a good time to write that Afro-minimalist book. And I was like, you think so? And she was like, yeah, I mean, people are going to be home. Like, this is perfect time. Me, as if I don't already have stuff to do, write this proposal. First editor we sent it to is like, I want it. <laughs> like, what? So the Afro-minimalist guide to living with less, the book deal, writing the book, turning that book in. The launch, all of it happened during the pandemic. Is that not crazy? <laughs> so take us back a little bit to your, because we haven't really gone deep into your minimalism story. Now oh that we've set journey. the scene. Yeah. yeah we set the scene on the fact that you're home writing and you, you're, mm-hmm. you end up getting a divorce and you move back into the small condo. So what, what happens then? Yeah, man. So that moving back to that small condo, it was minimalist by circumstance, right? Uh, that <laughs> right. choice went away real quick. But I think it was a beautiful lesson in me really sort of discovering like, what do I really need to use in love? Like that's how that framework sort of came about for the book, right? Because there are certain things that we need, but we might not really, you know, we don't really love them. There are certain things, obviously, that we love, but we really don't need or use right now. I was like, this is such a small space. I need to need, use, and love everything that's in here. You know, we had a large home, so I was able to leave a lot of stuff over there, <laughs> you know, and to the point where we were just like, you know, it'd be like six months past. And I'd just be like, you know what? Just throw it all away. And he'd be like, really? Like, mm. even then, I'd be like, don't tell me what it is. Because then I'm going to be like, I left that over there. Let me have that, right? And so that's how I came up with that part of the book that's like, you know, sometimes if you want to do like a quick, fast, and a in a, a hurry approach, like put everything in a box or in a space that you think you won't be going into for a while. And if you go, if you don't go in there, if you don't find yourself going in there within, you know, a few months, just donate the box unopened. You know what I mean? Because it was it was easier for me to let it go because I had right. not seen it. Right. So right, like, if right. I haven't seen it, I obviously don't need it. And use it or love it enough to have it in this space. Right. But you're not calling yourself a minimalist at this point. You're not on minimalism online (laughs) communities at this point, or are you? If I had an opportunity to do it all over, I would not have called myself the Afro-minimalist. The name, the only name that could have come close would have been Afro-intentionalist, which is even more of a mouthful than Afro-minimalist. So I guess it'll all work out. But what it really is, is living with intention. I hear people all the time, they say, I can't be a minimalist. There's no way I can be a minimalist, but that's because that word evokes a certain image, a certain aesthetic. It evokes feelings of scarcity and lack, right? And so I tell people like, okay, so don't be a minimalist. Can you live with more intention? Can you be a more mindful consumer? Can you live with less, right? And I'm like, I can do that, (laughs) you know? And so I think that word just has now such a negative connotation to it and a negative and even limiting approach as a lifestyle that a lot of people can't see the benefits for what it is. And what it really is, is a, it's a practice. It's a mindset, right? And what we have seen so often are the aesthetics. And so what mm. is stuck in our mind when we hear that word is the image 
that we see on Pinterest, right? Which is this barren white room with one chair in the corner and a lamp. And we're like, "Mm -mm, I can't do it. Right. And so I think my journey sort of just taught me that, right? I, I had to try and mirror the aesthetics that I saw online to realize this doesn't feel good. And this is not how I would live, right? And so that's how I ended up calling myself the Afro-minimalist. When you coined that name, were you on a walk? Were you in the shower? Like, how did you know Mm. that was it? And then secondly, did you get any pushback from people going, you're going to paint yourself in the corner, you know, just trying to appeal to the culture with minimalism or anything like that? What is so wild is I never imagined this being what it is today, if that makes sense, right? Like mm-hmm. for me, when I coined that term and I don't remember where I was, probably picking out an Ankara pillow somewhere, right? Being like, yeah, know <laughs> what? <laughs> I know they said we're not supposed to have color, but this is what I want. It was a way for me to just sort of make minimalism my own. And it was just supposed to be my Instagram handle and my blog, right? Which was to show a different sort of approach to minimalism. I never imagined it being a guide. I never imagined having 60,000 whatever followers, right? But I think what that says is so many people are curious about this space, but have seen it so limiting. And so to see someone do it on their own terms, it's like, oh, wait a minute, right? So I've had people say like, I didn't know I could have color. I was like, who told you you couldn't have color? Like there's all these unofficial rules that have become almost like the rules of minimalism, right? And so I think having people see someone do something different is where it just became appealing. And then I also thought it was important when I ended up writing the book was to really talk more about the psychology of ownership, which is something that we never talk about, right? Like most Mm -hmm. of the minimalist books are like, all right, gather up all your things. Let's go. You know, (laughs) it's like, we should probably talk about why we have so much stuff in the first place and really Mm -hmm. sort of figure out our motivations and attachments. I've heard from a lot of people too, like that's the most appealing part of the book to them because you can declutter a million different ways. You can find what sparks joy. You can do this. You can, there's so many ways that you can declutter, but unless you really get to the root causes of your overconsumption, you just don't keep decluttering. Right? right? Because you don't understand why you overconsume. Right. You don't understand why it's so hard to let go, why you have these attachments to certain things. When you started your blog and your Instagram handle, I'm assuming you were already on Instagram. So there was a day where you decided, okay, I'm going to rebrand. <laughs> I'm going to rebrand myself as I this other thing. I remember that day. Yes, yes, yes. So I used to have an author account. And I was determined to keep my author account. I think I had like 3,000 followers. And uh-huh. at the time, it just felt like a lot. And I was like, I can't let go of this account. <laughs> um, right. I'm going to so disappoint like, my 3,000 followers. I'm disappoint my, dis- my 3,000 folks. So I had started this Afro-Minimalist account and launched the blog all around the same time, which was like January 1, 2019 was when it started, right? I had this whole like, I'm going to launch. And so it was just me sharing little snapshots of my life. And so I would have like my writer's life. And then I would have my effort minimalist life, my writer's life, minimalist life. The writer's page ended up, I mean, it was a lot of pressure. I felt it was very, very curated. It wasn't very authentic, right? Like, you know, you're a writer. No, we're, we're not like 
lighting candles and placing this right. You know what I mean? It's like, shoot, I gotta hurry up. You know what I mean? But like it was very (laughs) it was very staged. And I remember one day, oh my gosh, like like I literally took it must have taken me like an over an hour to try and create this perfect photo. And I was setting the book this way and I was opening it this way. And then I had a candle over here. And then I remembered reading something that readers hated to see pictures of books with unlit wicks. And I was like, damn it, I forgot to light the candle. I'm taking the picture. And I was just like, this is so ridiculous right now. Like I have spent over an hour curating a fake writing experience, right? (laughs) I should have been writing. I should have been writing, right? And that was the day that I was like, so, hey, y'all, I'm about to be over on the Afro-Minimalist <laughs> account only. Come on over or I'll see you next time. And because the Afro-Minimalist account was so natural, right? Like I would wake up. You can see I get a lot of light in here. You see me having to like adjust the blind so I'm not like mm-hmm. blinded by the light. But some mornings I like wake up, light comes pouring in. I've just made my bed. The plants, it's just hitting everything. And I'm just like take a picture on my phone. I just upload. I'm like, ah, having such a beautiful morning, right? Have Mm. a great day y'all or whatever. Right. But it was just very natural. There was no curating. There was no staging. And so I think because I had that account that was just very natural, it made me realize like how ridiculous I was being (laughs) with my other account and how much time I was wasting. Right. I think Mm one of the many benefits that minimalism has taught me is time because Mm -hmm. I got so much time back, right? Time that I used to spend cleaning, time that I used to spend trying to figure out what I was going to wear, time driving to the mall to buy something to wear, right? Like you just become so much more aware of your time and so much more aware of what it means to live with intention. And so I tell people often, minimalism is like a gateway to living with intention. There's no way you can just be intentional with your wardrobe or intentional with your home decor and not have this intentionality just sort of like trickle into every area of your life. And so that's, that's what was happening for me around that time. What do you mean by, it's not a deal if you don't need it. And what's the why behind the buy? Yeah. So those are my little mantras, right? Uh So I have these shopping mantras that I take with me because early on in my journey, like I almost became afraid. I was like afraid to go shopping because I didn't trust myself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then I had to say, Christine, like you can't avoid them all forever, Mm -hmm. right? Like you got to figure out something to say or do to keep you in check and keep you in line with your goals. And so I started coming up with these little mantras. And because I love a sale, Whenever I'm at the sale rack, I have to tell myself, it's like, oh, this is so cute. It's not a deal if you don't need it. Go ahead, put it back, put it back. (laughs) You know, I don't have to say it now as often as I did back then, but I still have to use it every now and then. And the what's the why behind the buy is really, you know, and I find myself going to get something that I don't necessarily need. I'm like, what is the why behind this buy? Like, am I going through something emotionally? Right. Like right now is a very emotional time for me. My beautiful daughter is now in college and I'm just much more emotionally vulnerable and more than I thought I would be. And, you know, I remember saying, because everyone would be like, aren't you going to date again? I'm like, 
I'm not dating until my daughter goes to college, right? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm alone out here for real. You know, like when you are a single parent, you feel like you never feel alone. Like you always have someone, right? And as she got older, it was like, I always had a buddy to go to brunch with, a buddy to do this with, a buddy to do that with, right? And so, yeah, like I'm in a much more emotionally vulnerable place right now. And so if I go into a store, I am much more inclined to just be like, hmm. and I'd be like, ah, what's the why? You miss a Nala right now? You know what I mean? Are you, mm. are you feeling some type of way? Are you buying this? Because you might finally set up this Tinder profile. I'm not, but anyway. As you've mentioned or hinted at a lot of times when we are hoarding or just buying unnecessary things, the real reason is four or five layers deeper than those other four stories we're telling ourselves about why I need to have this. And I'm just curious, like if someone looks around wherever they are listening to this right now and they see, hey, I have things that I don't use, that I don't need, that I don't love. What's one way to sort of break through those stories or to get deeper aside from, I mean, obviously going to therapy and all that helps a lot, but let's say you don't even have those resources. Mm -hmm. What's a way to kind of get to the essence of those philosophies sooner rather than later? So, so it's a couple of things, right? The the mantras are really just a reason to pause, right? Because Mm. I think so often the the reason we end up like buying things and, you know, finding ourselves in these situations is because we didn't pause. I came up with these, you know, very philosophical <laughs> sort of ways, but like, you know, I tell people all the time, just pause, just pause. Right. And they're like, wait a minute, why am I buying this? Right. Or do I need this? Right. When you already have an accumulation of things, right you have to do the inner work and there is no easy way around that. It is essential to uncovering why you have all the stuff. Right. And I think people get discouraged by just the idea of it because they put this finite time on it. Right. Again, this goes back to what mainstream minimalism has, has shown us, which is you should be able to do this in a weekend. Why is this taking you a month? to figure out why you have an attachment to X, Y, and Z, right? And so that pressure, we have this pressure that we put on ourselves that it needs to be done in a weekend or, you know, this is a weekend warrior mission. I hear people say that all the time. And I'm like, did it take you a weekend to accumulate all all that stuff, right? Like you got to give yourself some time to do that inner work. And that inner work is, is really uncovering why you're motivated to have certain things and keep certain things why you are attached to certain things, why it's so hard for you to let go of certain things, right? And that is like inner work that takes time. I always tell people it starts in childhood. You know, a lot of who we are as adults is manifestation of what we saw, learned, or were told, right? And it doesn't always have to be by parents or caregivers. I talk a lot about you know, many of us were raised by a community, right? Or Mm -hmm. maybe your family was very active in church or maybe, right? Mm -hmm. And so you may not even know where, and you may have only heard it one time, right? Like, I like to say somewhere along the line, someone whose opinion I valued highly told me not to be a writer. Mm -hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like my mom's, oh my God, I remember when you used to write stories, you were like eight years old. I remember you submitting a poem to this when you were like 11 and all you did was ask me for a stamp, you know, like, so it was always there, 
but somewhere along the line, someone discouraged me, right? So that inner work is discovering where did I start to learn some of this behavior, right? Or what was the experience that happened? Joe allowed me to share his story in the book, which he's a big sneakerhead. And I said, like, can you think back to a moment in childhood where that may have sort of happened? And he said, I know exactly when it happened. The new Jordans came out. I asked my parents for new Jordans. Like many black parents, they were like, you have lost your mind if you think about the pair of $100 sneakers. And they bought him a pair of knockoffs. He had to wear them to school. He was clowned relentlessly. You can only imagine. Oh my God. Like, can I just tell you the story? The Payless shoes Uh, knockoffs. (laughs) Listen, when he told me, and I'm really, you know, I, you might, you can imagine I've heard like every story, but when he told me that in addition to the silhouette of Michael Jordan, you know, in midair, that there was, there was somebody up there blocking him. I was like, there was not another silhouette of someone blocking (laughs) Michael Jordan on your like, dude, I know they clowned you relentlessly. And he was like, it was so horrible that he remembered saying, when I'm an adult, I'm going to buy whatever sneaker I don't care how expensive it is, I'm going to buy it. And he counted and out of like, let's say he has like 60 pairs of shoes, like 40 of them are Jordans, right? Yeah. Because, and this yeah. is how like deep rooted this stuff is. And I tell yeah, you told the story happen. about your husband, I believe, with the laundry, with the dishwashing liquid. Oh, right? yeah. My friend's husband. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's so right. That's your friend's a, husband. Everyone, yeah. Everyone loves that story. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he used copious really... amounts of dishwashing yeah, liquid. And she was she like, was why do you used... use so much dishwashing liquid? Yeah, I was like, well, do, have you ever asked him? She's like, girl, the bubbles are overflowing out of the sink. And I'm like, but girl, he is in there washing dishes. This is a good thing. And she's <laughs> like, no, thing. it is not. And I said, just ask him. And he told her he grew up really poor and he was raised by his grandmother in the deep South and they would Mm. get dish soap from the dollar store. And even then he would only be allowed to use a drop. And so now that he's an adult, he buys the most expensive dish soap and uses Mm. all the bubbles. Like that's actually like that. I kind of like that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) We're all rooting for him. We're all rooting for him to make all the bubbles he wants. Um, but yeah, you know, you think about if you grew up with food insecurity, right? A lot of mm-hmm. folks, they just have like very full pantries. And they're like, I know I'm never mm-hmm. going to be able to eat all this, but it just comfort is mm-hmm. a very big part, right? In terms of our motivations and attachments, right? Mm-hmm. And so they are comforted by opening that pantry and seeing it full because they remember being younger and opening the pantry and seeing it empty and wondering when are we going to have our next meal? Right. So I I really encourage people to do that inner work and think about what are some moments from childhood? What are some moments from young adulthood, whether it be, again, something someone told you, something that you experienced that sort of started this process of consumption, right? Like we talk about conspicuous consumption, right? who somewhere along the line, someone said, you need to look the part. If you want the job, you need to look the part. And even though you didn't have the dollars, you spent them Mm. to look the part. And then it became, you know, you see what I'm saying? Like, it just, yeah, I think the principle here is beyond like just the stuff you have, but just pausing, pausing and evaluating. Is this the marriage I really want to be in? Is this the job, the career I really want to have? Is this a place where I really want to live? And, And people kind of, they tell themselves these stories, like, I can't 
do this. I can't leave. I can't. It's like mm-hmm. actually challenge actually, yeah. every single story you have and just make a habit yeah. out of challenging it, not in an obsessive way that's kind of crippling your day-to-day progress, but just right. in a way that just makes you curious about mm-hmm. why you do the things you do. I think that's very, very valuable inner work yeah. that anyone can do right now. Anyone can do and should do, right? And I think it's something that I have learned to just do regularly because you see like all these aspects mm. of your life. You're like, why do I do that? And I, I think so many people, our lives are an autopilot, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like, I'm just supposed to go to work and go home. I'm just supposed to get married by a certain age and have babies. And I'm supposed to, right. And it's just like this autopilot or this script that has been laid out that we have subscribed to and believe in, but that pausing to stop and be like, actually, do I really want to set up that Tinder profile? My life is real good right now, right? Mm. Like pausing, <laughs> right? And saying like, I can write whenever I want, right? Or pausing to say, why can I not only buy one when mm-hmm. I see a 10 for 10 deal? What is that about, right? I mm. only need one box of cereal. It's just me and my partner or me and my partner and one child. Mm. Why can I not just buy the one box of cereal? Mm. Why am I so enticed by that 10 for 10? You know what I mean? Like just, yeah, yeah. where's that coming from? Right. Or who says that I have to stay in this job for X number of years, right? Like I tell people all the time, reinvention is one of the best gifts that we have. We have the choice to reinvent ourselves as many times and as often as we need to. Why don't we do it? more often, right? And this comes up a lot with folks whose kids are going off to school. You know, folks forget who they were and what they wanted because for 18 Mm. years, they were so, I I am a mother, I am a mother, I am a mother, right? Mm. And, you know, one of the the reasons that I've chosen not to date is I I am still discovering parts of myself as a woman because I have been in mother mode for 18 years right? And just pausing. I've heard in other interviews, you said that I'm not, I don't consider myself to be a grown woman. I'm a growing. I am growing, right? Which I I love. Yeah, I'm growing, you know, because I feel like grown, it puts so much pressure right? It's like, girl, you've grown. You're supposed to be da-da-da-da-da by now, right? And it's like, actually I'm growing, right? And yeah. growing just gives you this room to explore and to, to think and to, I don't even say, I don't even like to use the word mistakes. It's like to make decisions and choices and maybe realize you should have made a different decision or mm. choice, right? Like growing gives you room for that. Grown is like, you should have this already figured right. out. What you got to pretend doing? like you know what you're doing, even oh though you don't goodness. know what you're doing. Yes. And that is, that is so much pressure, right? And I have been very clear that this is a season right now for me that I am just growing and exploring womanhood independent of motherhood. And I've had so many women reach out to me and say, that is so powerful. Like, I don't even think of myself as a woman. I just think of myself as a mother, right? And I'm like, I know. A person who makes sandwiches and uh, (laughs) runs errands. As a woman, yeah. And so anyway, yeah, I feel like, you know, I think using that growing, that grown philosophy, the pausing, you know, all of these things that we talked about, 
you know, those are just sort of indicators to help us almost like do like a self check. I feel like we don't do that a lot. We just stay on autopilot. And then we look up one day, or as my friend likes to say, and you might like this analogy, she said, there are people who just sit on the sidelines of life Mm -hmm. and watch it pass them by. And the last thing that I ever want to be doing is sitting on the sidelines of my life Mm. and watching it pass me by. If you're blessed enough to still have your mom around, what does she think about your whole Afro minimalism brand and lifestyle? She's so proud. She's so proud. And all the books you've written and everything. Oh my goodness. She has a little shrine in her house. It's super cute. She has leaned in and she's like, I'm so glad that you shared our story about shopping. Cause I told her, I'm like, you know, I wrote about you shopping in the book, right? Like it's, a, you know, it's like part manual, part memoir. And she said, I'm so glad that you shared that, you know? And she said, you know, as you know, now I wasn't really buying anything. We were just in the mall and, you know, we're in South Florida. The mall had free AC all day. <laughs> no brainer, right? <laughs> but what it has sparked is a lot of generational conversations, which I think sure. are so important when it comes to this work. But yeah, she's so proud. She's very, very proud. This is very sweet. Yeah. How are you thinking about success these days? That is still not a word that is in rotation in my vocabulary, right? If I were to pause and think about success right now, I think, you know, the fact that I wake up every morning and I have an opportunity to do what I love, I have an opportunity to help people, which is very much a part of who I am and a part of my love language. I mean, I feel like I'm successful every day that I wake up, right? I feel that, again, that pressure cooker, it really helps shape who you are. And I feel like I'm proud of the choices and decisions that I made in the height of what was probably one of the roughest times Mm. and darkest times in my life. Right. And so like, to me, all of those things equate success more than, you know, a monetary number or a title, like even like having your book on certain lists or, you know what I mean? Like what successful to me is the number of DMS and emails and getting an email from an 80 year old woman saying, you know what? I heard your conversation about inherited clutter and I'm going to work this out. So my kids don't like that to me is success, right? It doesn't matter how many books I sell. It's more like how many lives I impact and I I get an opportunity to do that every single day. So, I mean, I guess I'm successful, right? Like in my own, in my own way, you know? Well, I'm on a mission to redefine success away from monetary achievements. and, And I'm just so happy to hear that because I think the more people hear those kinds of testimonials related to mm-hmm. fulfillment, right? It, the more, because mm-hmm. we, it, there's so much messaging around, hey, you need to have crypto, you need to have these assets, you need right. to have this and that. And, and people call that financial <laughs> security, but I, I call it financial stability, which you absolutely need yes. to have in a capitalist society. But your security is going to come from, from how you feel about you and yeah. how you move through the world. And if you're doing the right absolutely. thing, and if you're leaving places better than you found them, that's where you're true security comes from. So I just want to acknowledge you. I want to acknowledge you for just making those difficult choices when you were in that pressure cooker and being the example 
of the change that you wanted to see in your own life, right? Mm-hmm. And, and realizing, I think, and this was probably, again, impressed upon you at, at 447 Cheerful Street that you have <laughs> to, there's no cavalry coming. You have to be no. the person who is going to be, you know, make you, those choices for no you. There's no Calgary coming, right? And like, even if the Calgary is coming, like you just want them to take you somewhere, like yeah, exactly. Save yourself, right? Go Save you yourself. Go. Save yes. yourself and go where you want to go. I love that you are, I would say not only redefining what success is, but also reimagining, right? Like mm. to me, that is such a big part of these ideals and things that people subscribe to, like what I am doing with Afro, it's a reimagining. And so it's like, let's reimagine what success can look like for us individually, right? Individually Mm -hmm. and collectively, right? And I think, you know, you find a lot of young people who think that success is getting a certain title or reaching a certain income level, and then they get there and they're so miserable. And Mm -hmm. then they don't know where to go from there, right? Mm -hmm. Because that is the only definition that we see of success, right? Very much like that is the only image that we saw of minimalism was this barren space, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think when we have these opportunities to redefine some of these terms and lifestyles and ideals and reimagine them for ourselves, I just feel like it's so powerful. So I think it's so dope you're doing that. Congratulations. Thank you. And also thanks for giving us a real world tangible example of what it means to pause. Because in my experience, when you pause once in a meaningful way, it's a little easier to do it again in another meaningful area of your life. And then a little bit easier. And then you do it 20, 30, 40, 50 times. And then it just becomes your lifestyle. You're able to do it. Yeah. And that's what it needs to be in order for it to really, really become as effective as an effective tool. So I just want to acknowledge you for that. I want to acknowledge you you for putting all the work into self-publishing that book. I know what that feels like. And my effort was three and a half years before I I was finally feeling like it was ready to go out into the world Ah. through create space. And so, and hopefully when people hear this, they will be inspired to not only look up your work, which is brilliant, but also to just do their version of that. Cause this is not about everybody becoming a minimalist or everybody quitting their job, but it's like, there's something, I love that quote. I think it's Joseph Campbell says, who says the treasure you seek is in the cave you fear to enter. Mm. So whatever your Mm -hmm. cave is, whatever that looks like, could be having a hard conversation, could be uh, taking a trip somewhere to visit your your ancestors or learn about Mm -hmm. your history or whatever, but it all always all, all comes together. And so it's not surprising to hear how your past, your obsession with African-American studies and even your JD and and the type of focus that that degree required just to helps you do everything that you're doing today and the way you grew up and the relationship you have with your mom. And, you know, it's, it's just really wonderful, beautiful story. So just want to thank you for that. Yeah. And thank you for allowing me the time and space to tell it. I think it's always fun to have those reflections, right? Yeah. And you just brought it all full circle for me. Like, <laughs> yes, that law degree. That's why I can sit still, you know, yeah. and, you know, I have the focus to write these books, but yeah, it all comes, it all comes full circle. And yeah, yeah this is a beautiful conversation. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll put all the links to all of your work in the show notes so people can find you quickly and easily. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. 
Thank you for tuning into my interview with Christine Platt. To learn more about her story and her work, I would suggest starting with her Instagram, which is at AfroMinimalist. And her website is afrominimalist.com. We'll put links to everything in the show notes, obviously. You can find those at lightwatkins.com slash tunnel. And while you're on my site, you may also see a link to my latest book, Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. As you may know, if you follow my work for a while, many of the inspirational stories in the book are drawn from my five years of sending out these little anecdotes or observations to my list of email subscribers on a daily basis. I call it Light's Daily Dose of Inspiration email. And you can subscribe for that while you're on my website, checking out the show notes to Christine's episode. My final ask for you is if you haven't already, leave a rating or review for this podcast. And you can do that again by looking at your screen, clicking on the name of the show, scrolling down past the past episodes and you'll see the five stars. Click the star on the right. You've left the rating. Thank you very much for doing that, for helping to spread the inspiration. Otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with the next story from the end of the tunnel. Until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. You can do it. Thank you and have a great day. you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, Just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.